there was a bit of a push by the pharmaceutical companies in the 90s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and this idea of mental illness is a chemical imbalance in the brain. And therefore, if we can just give the right chemicals, therefore, the brain balance out. And there's actually like no evidence for that. Building a successful real estate career requires you to adapt, pivot, and constantly master new skills. We're Katie and Daniel Steinfeld. We've built our own innovative brokerage. And in this podcast, we've assembled actionable tips and strategies that you can implement to take your business to its maximum potential. It's time to level up. Level up. Here we are again, leveling up. It is time for another episode, and I'm excited, as always. That's right. Uh, this past week, our team has been raising money for CAMH, which is the Center of Addic- for Addiction and Mental Health. Um, and we had a psychotherapist come into our team meeting and talk about mental health, struggles with it, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, we wanted to just bring you some of the clips that we had from that conversation and also just talk a little bit about what we learned beforehand. Yeah, we uh, actually today, we, we've been waking up every morning with our team as part of this CAMH fundraiser and chatting a bit about mental health. And um, we just spoke very specifically about how it relates to the industry and, you know, in our jobs where uh, it can be more relevant in something that we need to take awareness of for ourselves. So um, having a professional come in this week to talk to our team was great. I think above all else, if you take nothing else from this or other conversations about mental health, I think building up your awareness that it is a thing and that whether you're feeling it or whether somebody else around you is, you know, acting in a way that's foreign to you, be aware of the fact that lots of things go on with people, good and bad and otherwise. And the more you're able to try to be more self-aware. I think we've done that this week and it's given us the opportunity to just think a bit more and not just live in our thoughts, but actually get them out there with other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And similar to that is just the idea of slowing down your thoughts and just witnessing your thoughts coming into your head. And that's a big thing that we deal with a lot with real estate and dealing with clients and trying to work through challenges is a lot of times we're not realizing that the thoughts that are coming through our head aren't necessarily things that we have to act upon. And so slowing things down can be really helpful. Well, yeah, and and sometimes we don't slow down enough to even think about what actions we're taking Mm -hmm. from our thoughts, right? So sometimes we ignore them altogether or don't realize them. And sometimes we just trans... I I don't know what the science of it is, but like your thoughts turning into action. It's just kind of like without taking a moment to audit what your brain is saying, you just kind of do something, right? Like if you change your lanes... You react, yes. Mm-hmm. Like if you change lanes when you're driving without checking your blind spot because mm-hmm. you're just thinking, and I've done that before, mm-hmm. you know, you're like, holy shit, what did I just do? But yeah. like, that's why we take time in yeah. life to like check your blind spots. Yeah. Think about what it is that you're about to do or what you're you're thinking. Think about what you're thinking about. Or even why it is that you're feeling the way you're feeling when you 
have something come at you. Like a client says, I don't want to sell my house anymore. Like taking the time to just like, this is making me feel this way and recognizing the feeling and the thoughts that come after that, I think is good. I don't want to, I don't want to take away from the importance of this, but I thought you were about to say these pretzels are making me thirsty. (laughs) Pretzels always make me thirsty. And when you think that you might reach for a glass of water or you might say, why are these pretzels making me thirsty? That's right. But yeah, the, the the why was a big thing we talked about today also. And, and that's always something, even outside of, you know, this doesn't need to be a podcast about mental health for you to recognize the fact that we do things for reasons. And sometimes we get away from the big reasons that drive us and little reasons, um, you know, force quick gut check reactions that are not really what we want to do just because we're so, again, automated into moving quickly. Mm-hmm. So even before and other than when you think something, stopping to think about it, take a moment now and take a moment often to just reflect on what it is you're going to do, what you have been doing and why you're doing it. Yeah, Because that will impact your actions and probably impact your future thoughts to mm-hmm. some degree. Yeah. I don't know. We didn't ask him about that, but like the science of you know, change your mind, change your mind. We always say move your body, change your mind. But if you start to think about your mind, Mm -hmm. that should have a lasting impact on the way you think about things and act down the road as well. So you're not always stuck in a place of not the things you want to be thinking. Right, exactly. And then the other aspect is just the self-kindness piece. Uh, You typically are a lot harder on yourself than you are with others. And so just taking a moment to be a little kinder to yourself and in the reactions that you have towards what might have happened throughout the day, I think is really important. And I don't know if that's one of the clips we've got coming up. I guess we'll see. But yeah, that was an interesting exercise yeah. that was done where he asked all of us, who's harder on yourself than other people? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, that came out wrong. Yeah. Are you harder <laughs> on yourself or are you harder on other people? Yeah. And I I believe it was unanimous Mm -hmm. that we're all harder on ourselves. And you have to ask yourself why that is. And is that fair? Yeah. Um, Because you're doing good things, people. You are. I'm proud of you. Keep it up. So a big thank you to Mike Stroh, who is the psychotherapist who spoke with us. And we hope you enjoy these clips. Roll it. And this idea that mental health is physical health. So all of that, per se, is true. And at the same time, it's missing this component of, as as a species, as a civilization, treating mental health problems, if you can even say that, is very new. We have lived in a world of famine, war, conflict, tribalism, etc., for hundreds of thousands of years, if not millions of years. And that's a huge piece to this puzzle that is never discussed. There is my potential biased opinion, although this is shared by many people in this world, is that there's a bit of an intellectual arrogance with modern psychologists, perhaps, or, or people in this world that think because we're sort of quote-unquote advanced, we shouldn't have to deal with all the problems of being an animal. And therefore, those problems kind of don't influence our modern day experience, which is probably not helpful, again, in my opinion. So going back to that, just this idea, only in the last 50 years or so, 
give or take, have we really been in a position to start supporting people with their emotional issues uh, in a way that we never have before? So not only are we in that position, but we we didn't have the time or energy in in our lives to deal with these things. So that's important to notice to note, in my opinion. So what does that mean? It means although yes, we should worship. Yes, if we were better at these things, people would suffer less and their lives would be enhanced. And at the same time, we have a lot to learn and to practice. So it's one thing to say mental health is as important as physical health. It's a whole other thing to actually embody that in your daily life. And we're learning together. And that can be helpful because sometimes we, in some sense, project onto society or a mental health system or other people in our lives or even we take the burden on ourselves that we're not doing good enough if only people would do better if only i was better if only if only if only there's one really helpful self-awareness tool if you catch yourself having the if only thoughts you know you're kind of lost in a perhaps an unhelpful pattern of thinking that you will never find a finish so <laughs> we can acknowledge we've come a long way we have a long way to go but we're not as skilled in dealing with emotional issues as we are with quote-unquote physical ones, right? So everyone knows how to, what happens if you fall over and you break an arm. You go to the hospital, you get a task. The doctor says in four weeks or six weeks, it'll be better. But if you have a psychological issue, although the process is the same, you acknowledge your suffering, you ask for help, you start to heal, it's not as linear. I think that's helpful to remember. And this is actually how our healthcare system interprets these things. So this is called the two continuum or the dual continuum model. And so all it's showing us is this uh, y-axis okay, is mental health. So if you're a human being, of course, you have mental health. So on any given day, your mental health varies up and down. You know, you get good sleep, perhaps you get exercise, your relationships are going relatively well. You are um, perhaps performing at work or just like things are going in a good way. Your mental health is likely on the higher end. You're flourishing, perhaps. And then, as life inevitably does, things perhaps fall apart. And then, you know, you relate for work. Somebody, a loved one, says something to you that you don't appreciate. And so then you kind of go down. And the idea is just like we're always on this sort of continuum of good and bad days. Right? And there's obviously things that we can do to put us in the, put us in a position where the good days are more frequent and perhaps last a bit longer. And the bad days are less frequent and perhaps less, less. Although we can never escape the fact that life consists of suffering. And that's okay. Part of it is this expectation that we shouldn't suffer, that we shouldn't have difficult moments. That's what causes normal suffering. So on the other axis here is mental illness. So there's mental health, okay, and there's mental illness, as defined by, you could even say, Western medicine. So then what we're trying to learn from this model is you can have severe mental illness, or in this case here, high mental illness, and also have good mental health. So my brother who's a schizophrenia, when he's taking care of himself and doing all the things that are sort of suggested to him, he has a severe mental illness, and he also has good mental health. So it's helpful to remember that if you know somebody or if you yourself experience mental illness, it doesn't mean you're doomed to a life of misery or anyone else's. So here's the other side, of course, is you can have mild mental illness or no mental illness and good mentalized model of mental illness. And so there's something that's been, I guess I'm just going to say this because it might be helpful. There was a bit of a 
pushed by the pharmaceutical companies in the 90s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and this idea of mental illness is a chemical imbalance in the brain. And therefore, if we can just give the right chemicals, therefore, the brain will balance out. And there's actually, like, no evidence for that whatsoever. So, yes, mental illness is caused by brain things. It's not so simple, okay? So, there's this idea, I like this sort of simple model, okay? On the one side, we have what's called the thinking brain, and that's just connected to our threat detection system, which is in the sort of lower regions of the brain. And that part of our brain evolved to keep us safe in the environment. So what that simply means is when we were living in tribal groups, right, in the jungle, out in nature, if we see a threat, such as a predator or a lion, if we see that threat, signals danger, then the response is, okay, what do we do? So do we kill the lion, do we run from the lion, or do we build a wall around or between us and the lion? So it's very much problem-solution-oriented. And that thing is going 24 sevens a day, 24 hours a day, which is why humans are so prone to negative information, which is why our news cycles are so negative. It's because it's preying on this evolutionary adaptive part of us that in some sense is no longer serving us, but it's still very much there. And why it's important to know this is because what is happening to us now, and this is the hypothesis and perhaps also the theory, Another word for it is the negativity bias. So we're prone to negative information. And because this mechanism works so well, we're kept us safe for so long, we've turned that upon our emotions and our thoughts. So when we have a thought that we don't like, such as I'm stupid or nobody loves me or I'll never be good enough or wow, I really screwed that up or my boss is going to fire me or whatever. And that elicits a negative emotion, of course, shame, guilt, fear, anxiety, etc. This threat detection mechanism, or the thinking mind, goes into problem-solving mode, right? So how do I, you could think about it as freeze, flight, fight. That's actually the proper way to think about it. So you either freeze, or you run away or withdraw, or you fight the thoughts. And what we know is you can't fight your thoughts. You can't push them away or hide from them. That's called suppression or avoidance. And when we do that, because that actually is our habitual response, it actually makes it worse. Instead, you could go a step further into observing thinking, which is not thinking about thinking. And this is best cultivated through meditation practices or sort of contemplative practices. So a great example would be if I get an email that triggers me a wee bit and I start thinking either this person's, I don't like them, or I did something wrong, I feel shame, I this, I'm bad, I'm this, it's wow, I'm noticing that I'm having the thoughts that I'm a failure, or I'm noticing my experience of this emotion we call shame. And so it's a, it's sort of this idea of the Buddhist word of being non-attachment. One of the psych, modern psychological terms is diffusion. So sort of we're, we're untangling ourselves from identifying with our thoughts and our emotions. And that is uh, super duper helpful. Irritated and stressed out and etc. That person is straying away from their baseline. And that is a sign of overwhelm starting to happen. And, and oftentimes when we're not aware of it, it creeps up on us. And then all of a sudden we're burnt out or we're falling behind on certain projects or we are, whatever the case may be, right? We're late to meetings or this, that, and the other. That's the real life expression of overwhelm playing itself out. 
So the idea simply is to get a sense of what is your baseline. And then from there, we could talk about, there's so many ways to go here, but maybe a one step from this would be, how often do you say yes when you mean no? And how often do you say no when you mean yes? Because that contributes to overwhelm a lot. So for example, you have a super busy week. Somebody calls you and says, hey, can you do this thing for me? Or, hey, do you want to come join us here? And your automatic response is just to say, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And then you get home and you realize, how did I just agree to that? I don't have time for that. that that's a, such a fascinating thing to explore why we do that. And the same can be on the other end. So if you perhaps are having a hard time, or maybe somebody offers you help, or, hey, can I do this for you? Or, hey, you want me to go get you lunch? Or, hey, you want a coffee? And you say no. That's interesting, because maybe you actually really do want that, yet there's something inside you that won't allow yourself to receive the help, or that won't allow yourself to ask for the help, or that kind of thing. And so those two sides of that coin also contribute to getting overwhelmed, because either we're saying yes too often, or we're saying no too often, and we all have our tendencies in that way. The difference between empathy and compassion, and how that influences our behavior. There's another way to think about it. Um, so his argument is, basically, he wrote a book a while ago called Against Empathy. And this goes back to the sort of uh, superficial nature of the conversations around mental health. I guess it is a bit critical, but the Canadian Mental Health Association, okay, for this year's Mental Health Week, their word was empathy. And <laughs> I don't know who decides those things, but empathy actually isn't really... It's a human emotion. It can be useful and helpful, although ultimately it's not the most effective way of supporting other human beings or yourself. Okay, so empathy is simply, you, there's two forms of empathy. Cognitive empathy, which is you can in your mind think, oh wow, that person's having a hard time. I can have the thoughts of association, how hard that is for that person. So these people are either not selling their house. Uh, my mom recently sold her house it was probably like nine months ago or something like that. And it didn't totally go according to plan. It ended up working out. But so it's, oh, this person's having a hard time selling their house. I see how that's stressful. Okay, that's the cognitive empathy. Then the emotional empathy is actually feeling the stress of the other person. So there's also another framing for this, which I also like is you hear in healthcare settings, this idea of compassion fatigue. Or in any sort of caregiving profession. It's not accurate, though, because it's not compassion fatigue, it's empathy fatigue. So it's it's the healthcare people taking on the emotions of their clients without integrating compassion, so self-compassion and compassion for others. So those are the two things, taking on the emotions of somebody else, feeling other people's sadness. So you can think about it again. Yeah, if a client is having a meltdown in sadness, you don't want to also have sadness and have a meltdown, too. That's not going to be helpful. And but that's often kind of what we think we should be doing, or it actually just happens to you automatically because you are a human being. And so some of us are more vulnerable to that than others. Okay, that goes back to the type of person that you are, your personality, how you just perhaps have been raised, your genetics, all that kind of stuff. So we don't have much control over who we are genetically and sort of that kind of thing. So it's just simply to notice, do I tend to be more cognitively empathetic? Am I more emotionally empathetic? And then the, the practice against that, is self-compassion and that. And there's three main components of self-compassion. 
And the first is self-kindness versus self-criticism. So maybe just like a show of hands or a thing in the chat, like who here is better at being nice to other people than to themselves? So when you fail, feel inadequate, do something wrong, right? It, we're just wired to criticize ourselves. And, and But if we see someone else doing that, we don't tend to criticize them, right? You can, another absurd example is if someone you cared about just had a bad breakup or something like that, you wouldn't say to them, oh, yeah, it's because you're unlovable and you're annoying and nobody wants to be with you, of course. Of course they broke up with you, right? But we often say those things to ourselves. And that's just a strange paradox of, of again, the human experience. So this idea of self-compassion starts with self-kindness versus self-criticism. There's a nice little saying, I'm going to read it here. When we struggle, we give ourselves compassion, not to feel better, but because we feel better. When we struggle, it's difficult to be mindful. We'd rather kick and scream. Not only do we dislike what's happening, we think something is wrong with us because it's happening. In the blink of an eye, we can go from, I don't like this feeling, to I don't want this feeling, to I shouldn't have this feeling, to something is wrong with me for having this feeling, to I'm bad. And that happens so quickly and automatically that all we can really do is become aware of that and then respond to it in a way that's helpful. And the first piece is, okay, Perhaps a client's having a really hard time. You maybe don't know what to do, or everything you are trying is not helping, and maybe they're getting more angry or more restless or more stressed out. And maybe you turn on yourself, like, I'm not doing a good enough job, or maybe you project it onto them, well, they're annoying, they're stupid, but they can just listen to me, whatever it is. And it's just a turn inward, like, wow, this is difficult for me. So that's the first piece, is just acknowledging and validating that. When my clients are stressed, this is hard for me. And I don't like this. This hurts. I feel bad. I wish it wasn't this way, whatever. And then that that reduces the sort of uh, nervous system stress response, uh, that fight, flight, freeze thing. We're trying to soothe that. <laughs> Excuse me. And so the way we soothe that is by acknowledging what's actually happening in our own emotions. Begin and yang of self-compassion. You could think of these as Another way it's been defined philosophically for thousands of years is like the masculine and the feminine energy. So it doesn't mean male, female. It just means the energies inside of us. And so the the yang one is acting in the world. So do you need to say something? Do you need to get off your butt? Do you need to take action? Or the inside of it is this comfort and soothing. Do I need to just take a time out right now? So sometimes when my kids are freaking out and I'm freaking out and I want to like yell at them or something, and I can turn in and say, this is making me angry, I don't like this, blah, blah, blah. Then I have gotten pretty good at asking myself, okay, do I need to go and say something to them? Or do I need to go and have a daddy time out kind of thing? Go lie down in the bed. So this might be the same thing with a client's freaking out or you're having a hard time. You can ask yourself, do I need to say something right now? Is that going to be helpful? Or do I need to go take a time out so that I can chill first and get my own head screwed on straight so that I can respond more effectively? This our ability to have agency over our perception. So an example would be, again, like if you get caught in a particular pattern, and we all have them of, this person did something that I don't like, or I did something I don't like, and I get tense, right, or my jaw clenches, or my heart races, or whatever. There's this idea of like being the thinker, or being the observer of the thinker, which is kind of what you were asking. So we're trying to practice being the observing presence of the thoughts and the emotions. 
Then we can allow them to pass, because they all have a lifespan, right? There's like a beginning, a middle, and an end to any thought stream. Like we think in stories very much, humans. And so can I can I identify with my perception or my consciousness so that I'm not hooked or attached to the thoughts and the feelings so that I can watch them pass by, right, or dissolve back to the abyss that they came from. And then there's more space for me to direct my perception, right, or my attention. Another word you could think of is attention. So the theories around trauma is the nervous system stores memory and stores experience. And until we process those memories and experiences, they stay with us forever. And perhaps they always will stay with us, but the intensity of the automatic nervous system response gets reduced greatly. And so you start to explore, it's sort of like this idea of the past and the future are in the present. And if we can be present with what's happening now, then we can explore those things. And so through that exploration, you start to uncover things that have happened in the past. I don't think it, there's probably, there is debate on like all these things, if we got more picky about it, but that's sort of like the general thing is like, can I know myself in the present? Then can I start using my memory of past difficult moments to uncover these things? And then how do I start working through those in a way that's helpful? And like trauma has to be healed through exposure to the trauma in the memory bank. And when I make choices from day to day, I'm either moving towards the person I want to be or I'm moving away from that person. So as I just said, when I act in ways that are not congruent with my values, I tend to suffer. And then that's when the self-criticism comes in, right? Or the blaming others or the, if only my life was like this, I'd be okay. If only this hadn't happened or when this happens, I'll be okay. Like for me, that's sort of like, for most people, that's it just looks different. And so then it's like, okay, when I get triggered, what's happening? First of all, how am I getting hooked? And then how can I, this is where self-compassion is so helpful. It's like, oh, how can I be with the suffering in a way that doesn't make it worse? And then how do I use compassion or how do I use self-talk or whatever? There's all kinds of things you can do to move towards the person I want to be. So I'm still going to suffer. I'm still going to have hard moments and that's okay. Well, what do I do with them when they happen so that I can move towards this other person I want to be? So the, you know, the, the conventional wisdom, like here's, we have, we have, what did they say? We have all the ingredients and we don't have the recipe. Level up, 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 level up,